Welcome to a very special episode of the Reform Brotherhood. I have with me Dr. Jonathan Master, who currently serves as the Dean of the School of Divinity and Professor of Theology at Cairn University. He's recently been appointed as the President-Elect at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Uh, Jonathan is a prolific uh, producer of all sorts of different content. He is the editorial director uh, at the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. He was the founding editor of the Alliance magazine, which is called Place for Truth. And he is the co-host of the, Alliance, um, the Alliance's podcast, which is called Theology on the Go, which he co-hosts with uh, Dr. James Dolezal. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, Tony, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited. So just a little bit of context for the audience. So um, I've shared on the, in the past that I am on the steering committee for my regional uh, ETS, uh, Evangelical Theological Society chapter. And we had invited Jonathan to come uh, to our conference in New England. And unfortunately, due to all of this craziness with uh, the coronavirus, we had to cancel that for safety issues. So uh, I asked Jonathan, he had, he had already begun to prepare some of his research. Uh, and I figured, you know, what better place to share it than on a podcast. So uh, Jonathan, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about Cairn uh, University? You know, I, I think people in our audience have probably heard it, but mostly from uh, being familiar with you and with Dr. Dalzal's work and knowing, you know, that work, not necessarily so much with the school itself. Yeah. So Cairn is located just outside of Philadelphia. It's in a suburb of Philadelphia. It's been around under different names, but it's been around for over a hundred years. And I think what sets us apart in addition to our location and size and some of the particular uh, faculty members that we have, what sets us apart is that every student who comes to Cairn takes at least 30 hours of Bible and theology. So we have a core wow. curriculum and the core curriculum has an extensive amount of Bible and theology. So what that means is it kind of infuses the place when uh, we have students in our Bible and theology classes, they are majoring in a host of different things, biology, business, education, and they're bringing those questions to bear on the theology classes. But similarly, when they're going into their ed classes, business classes, bio classes, they are bringing sort of biblical and theological questions to bear there. So that's the, that's the approach that Karen has taken, uh, a strong core curriculum, a strong commitment to the inspiration and inerrancy of the scripture and the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ on all of education. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, before the interview, I was kind of browsing through Karen's website and, you know, I went to uh, a, it's relatively small, but a school in Minneapolis called Bethel University. Yes, sure. And, you know, one of the things that I appreciated at Bethel, uh, which I think has actually slid off the rails a little bit in recent years, is a similar kind of dynamic where, where there was a, it wasn't as robust, but there was a, a robust Bible program, which was designed to do exactly that. So it's exciting to see, you know, especially um, kind of as you get towards the East Coast, there's less and less of that. So it's exciting to see Karen is there uh, to kind of provide that education for undergraduates and also, a, you know, a range of uh, graduate degrees as well. Yeah, it's a privilege to be there. And uh, like you said, uh, there are there are schools that have um, kind of moved, shifted a little bit away from that focus, but um, we're, we're grateful to be doing what we're doing. It's It's a it's a great place to teach. Yeah, that's awesome. So t tell me a little bit about uh, Greenville. 
when, when are you starting all of those kinds of things? You know, Greenville is a seminary that I, I think our audience probably is familiar with. Um, we recommend, you know, Dr. Piper's work frequently. Um, you know, we recommend the podcast. So tell us a little bit about, you know, when your transition is going to happen and tell us about Greenville as a seminary. Well, when the transition is going to happen is uh, a little bit tricky right now with all the things happen going on, but it officially starts, I officially start there July 1st. Okay. Uh, so that's the, that's the target date. That's, that's when we're going to uh, officially make the, the transition. Uh, we are trying to move ahead of that date, of course, and that's been a little bit complicated by the coronavirus and on all the implications of that. But really early summer, Lord willing, we'll be on the ground in Greenville and uh, beginning in the midsummer. Dr. Piper is, of course, staying at the seminary, which I'm glad for. I'm grateful for. I told the board they asked me about that and I told them I wouldn't really want to be there if he wasn't staying. Um, He's staying obviously in a very different capacity. He's going to be uh, teaching theology and uh, he, so he'll be there in the fall semester. Then he's taking a spring semester off as a kind of sabbatical. And then uh, he'll be back teaching the following fall. So that's how the transition is laid out at this point. Um, In terms of Greenville, like you and like a lot of your listeners, I've known about Greenville for a long time, but it was from a, a distance. I, I got to know some of the professors there. I got to know Dr. Piper a little bit. But again, all of it was, uh, you know, just a, a little bit distant for me. I, I knew what they stood for. I loved what they stood for. But, um, but because, because of its location, it was, it was just slightly out of my circles, although I, I knew graduates and I thought really highly of the graduates that they were turning out. So what I think distinguishes Greenville, at least as I got to know it better, uh, is a kind of laser-like focus on training men for pastoral ministry in local churches and for uh, training them in all the things that are necessary to engage in Christ-centered, word-centered ministry in the local church. There's a high view of the local church. There's an emphasis on personal piety. That's something that you just don't see, frankly, at many seminaries. Many seminaries are rigorous academically, but those other things are sort of left, uh, you know, left to the churches. But, but Greenville works in partnership with local churches and emphasizes all of those things. The men who are sent there are sent there by churches or presbyteries in many cases. And so uh, that it, it really sets it apart. I, I, I have, um, is there, there's some, there's some men who te- teach at Greenville who've taught other places. And when I asked them, you know, what they noticed immediately about the difference, uh, that's, that's what they point to. So that's right at, at the center of my own convictions and passions. And so I am just, I couldn't be more delighted to go down there and to engage in the work with those who are already doing it. Yeah, that's great. You know, there's, you know, as you look at kind of the field of seminaries, and I think things are even going to change a little bit more now with coronavirus and the the impact on education and finances and, and the economy, which we're still you know, kind of trying to figure out what that's going to be. You know, the, the big reform seminaries people think about, you know, you got the two Westminsters, you know, RTS, um, you know, Midwest, uh, uh, yeah, Midwestern Reformed. And, and Greenville is one of those seminaries that until I started 
really interacting online with confessional um, Presbyterians, I had never heard of Greenville. So when I was, you know, when I was looking at seminaries, it never even crossed my radar. And so it's been exciting to me to really learn about it because the, the men that I've interacted with who've come out of Greenville are exactly as you described. They're academically well-equipped to defend the faith. Um, they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they want to serve him. Um, they're some of the most committed pastors that I've, I've ever met. And uh, they are confessionally solid men. Um, whatever confessional tradition they're a part of, they know their faith, they know their confessions, and they're men of conviction, which not to speak ill of other seminaries, but there are a lot of seminaries. You know, I went to Gordon-Conwell, which was, is a fine evangelical school, but there are a lot of people who are going just for academic exercises. Um, and I think there's a place for that. But Greenville, I think, is one of those places where you don't go there just to get a degree. You go there because you you want to become equipped to serve the church and serve the Lord. So that, that's great. I'm so excited to see where this school is going to go. Um, you know, I think your visibility with the Alliance is, is uh, it's definitely present. And I think this is going to bring more visibility to the seminary. So that, that's a very exciting development when I heard about it. Well, thanks. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of things that I, I think are um, accented at the seminary. There is a doctrinal unity there and a, and a concern for sound doctrine, uh, sound reformed teaching, confessional integrity that, um, that is pronounced. It's pronounced at the seminary and it's pronounced in the lives of the graduates. And, and then, and then too, I think you hit on something that uh, Dr. Piper mentions a lot uh, when you're down there, which is he'll, he'll often say, we're not a graduate school of theology. We're a seminary. And, yeah. and the distinction that he's trying to draw out is, is not, you know, we're not academic because it's rigorous academically. Um, in fact, it's, you know, it's very rigorous. There's a great emphasis on the biblical languages and, and all these kinds of things. But, but what he's trying to get at is the fact that we're not here to train people for uh, a, a PhD or to train people to necessarily just navigate through the, the academic world. Although we have graduates who, who are doing just that, we're here to train men for yeah. gospel ministry in the local church. Yeah, that's great. And kind of the last little bit of prolegomena, if you will, uh, tell us a little bit about the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Yeah, so the Alliance, um, it, it, there's, it depends uh, where you want to start in terms of the, the sort of narrative of its inception. Um, I think it came into its current form and it's uh, under its current name, under the ministry of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. He was concerned in the late 80s, early 90s, along with a number of other people, he was concerned with the drift in the evangelical church. And he started digging into that historically. And one of the conclusions that he came to was that evangelicalism untethered from historic confessions will just drift. Yeah. Um, he was, of course, very active in the, um, in the debates over the inerrancy of Scripture. But I, what I think he became convinced of was that he saw all these churches that affirmed inerrancy, but had essentially abandoned the sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah. And so that was the impetus behind the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Now, there were some structures in place that went all the way back to Donald Gray Barnhouse's ministry, uh, an eternity magazine and things like that. But, but the Alliance as it's currently set up was really a ministry that came from uh, Dr. Boyce. So what we do today is we're still engaged in that same work. We're calling the church, the evangelical church 
to uh, to reform and to tie itself to these historic confessions. We believe there there's health there. And the way we do that is through various means. This has changed a lot, of course, since um, Dr. Boyce's day. Uh, we still uh, produce uh, sermon content that's broadcast on a lot of radio stations. Dr. Boyce's sermons, of course, his teaching, but others as well. We have the podcasts that you mentioned, and then we have some online kind of uh, blog, magazine type things. Reformation 21 and Place for Truth are are the two best known. So engaged in a lot of different works. Of course, there are conferences as well that we sponsor. The biggest is the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, which I am sad to say yeah. uh, not going to be happening in person. Uh, it would have been uh, this month, but yeah. uh, but that's a ministry that has has touched a lot of people and has a. Um, introduced a surprising number of people. I always meet people who are introduced to Reformed theology through the Philadelphia Conference. Yeah, the Philadelphia Conference is great. I, I went last year, and um, the the lineup was amazing. And, and I think the thing for me, you know, I've, I've been to all sorts of different academic conferences, and every conference has kind of its own flavor. But what I found really edifying about the, the uh, Philadelphia Conference is it's really more, I kind of compare it to almost like the old school Puritan prophesying conferences, where instead of coming and hearing an academic lecture, you know, about a particular topic, there's certainly enough academics going on. Um, it's really more a time to come and sit with God's people and hear really good doctrinally sound sermons expositing the scripture. Um, it's, it's not quite the same as something you would find at an ETS conference, even the national one, or, you know, like a North American Patristic Society or something like that, SBL. It really is a chance to worship with uh, the saints in a, a distinctly reformed way, I think, where, you know, it's, it's much more focused on hymns and on traditional kinds of forms of worship and interactions. It really was just a great time. So I would encourage all of our listeners to go to uh, alliance.org or ref21 or reformation21.org. Check out all these different resources. Um, Place for Truth, uh, Truth has had this series on the Ordo Salutis that I found really engaging and really encouraging. And it, it's not it's not super high level technical theology, but it's written by people who are competent to write that kind of theology and also competent to sort of distill it out to digestible formats. I think like the average article when I plug it into my pocket reader that reads it out loud to me is like five or five to 10 minutes. So it's not a huge time investment. Um, so check those out. I'll put some, sh um, some links in the show notes. Uh, and you know, it's, it's interesting kind of ending on that note with, with um, the Alliance our topic today, you know, you were, you were going to present on a topic you're calling the Nicene Imperative. And, you know, as most of our listeners know, like the, the eternal functional subordination controversy, some of the stuff going on with theology proper in, in certain quarters of not just um, evangelical theology, but now within Reformed theology, um, has been something that's been troubling to me personally for at least, you know, probably four or five years now, you know, a little bit before it heated up in, in 2016, I started studying it. And then now, of course, it's been just an ongoing argument and debate and controversy for the last four or five years now. So, so tell us a little bit about kind of the, the overview of your research uh, for these papers and kind of what your main goals were. Well, the papers were going to take different approaches. They were, uh, the second one was really building on the first. In the first paper, what I was attempting to do 
was to look at the theological culture, and I and I use that term. I'm borrowing that term. It's not it's, it's not original with me. The theological culture of of Nicaea of the third uh, and fourth century uh, church fathers who were at the front lines of formulating what we know of now as Nicene theology, Nicene orthodoxy, uh, Nicene Trinitarianism. What, what you see when you look at them is that there is a distinct theological culture. And many of our best scholars, our best patristic scholars, will use that kind of language. Um, they, they, were, they were, number one, having these discussions within the framework of certain shared assumptions. They were... Um, in many respects, um, building off of the same thinkers. And the individual um, terminologies and the individual even credo formulations uh, were, were embedded in, in a kind of, uh, well, again, to use, the, to use the word I've already used, a, a, a certain theological culture there, there was uh, that what that was embedded in what they did so so what I try, what I was trying to do in the first uh, paper was to explore what that theological culture consisted of and then in the second one um, what I was going to do and I didn't get as far in that research but actually in that one uh, there's been more done um, so I don't think I would have added anything particularly new to the discussion what I was going to do is to is to show how that theological culture and the, that sort of network of assumptions was abandoned in many cases in yeah. modern evangelicalism. Yeah, yeah. I did most of my um, my graduate work um, under uh, Dr. Donald Fairbairn at Gordon-Conwell. Mm -hmm. And so Athanasius was kind of like, he's my homeboy. Right. And, you know, it, it's interesting because I read you know, the most the most sort of famous of the articles that does this, there was several that have come out, but uh, during the kind of height of this EFS controversy in 2016, the summer of 2016, uh, Wayne Grudem publishes this article with just this litany of quotes, historical quotes. I remember that. And, yeah. you know, it's difficult because when you look at those quotes or, or I was reading um, Voss's dogmatics uh, the other day, I'm, I'm going through theology proper again, and there are definitely quotes within those books, or Bavink has a few, that look like it supports some of this EFS stuff. Or, or you go back into um, people like Athanasius, uh, not so much Augustine, uh, but more the Eastern Fathers, who do have a little bit of a propensity for kind of this hierarchy within the Trinity, at least in the way they talk. Um, and it's hard, because it's hard to sort of peel out. And I think that this theological culture element that you're, you're talking about is really where that comes from. And, th and that goes for the patristics, uh, I think, even more so because of how far removed we are from them. But the same is true with Voss and Bavink or, or even more modern day people. Um, you really have to understand those presuppositions before you can understand kind of what those statements mean in their context. So tell us a little bit about kind of what you were thinking or what you were finding this theological culture. You know, Dr. Fairbairn talks about it as sort of like the theological and philosophical air that was being breathed. It's, it's a background uh, reality that affects everything, but because it's so pervasive, nobody comments on it. So you have to dig a little bit to get at it. So tell us a little bit about the results of your research in that area. Well, I, I think that that way of describing it, the air they were breathing, is a really helpful one. And I tried to organize this in a way that uh, at least would made, make sense to me. I, I think they had a 
particular approach to scripture that uh, needs to be recognized and understood, and and not just an approach to all the scriptures, but an approach to certain specific scriptures in particular, then, uh, so, so that would be the first thing I would want to highlight. The second item worth highlighting is that there were certain axiomatic theological convictions that they shared. Um, there, there were certain things that they took for granted about who God was, so that when, when they used that kind of language, uh, there, were, there were assumptions that were just embedded in that. Yeah. And then, and then I think the third thing, and this is perhaps the, um, maybe in one sense, the least important and the one that's hardest for us to rescue, but, it, but important nonetheless, in order to understand what they were talking about, it was that they, they did have particular historical starting points. There were questions that they were trying to answer that might not be immediately obvious if we just, you know, went through their works and tried to pull quotes. And, and you know, Tony, what you brought up earlier I remember that Grudem article. It was a particularly, I would say, egregious example of uh, the kind of thing that I am pushing back against. But, but you know, when we come to Scripture, we know that we can't do that. I mean, we're all yeah. taught um, in 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 all of our schools. We're all taught that you can't simply just take a few words out of context and uh, use them as a jumping off point or a proof text. We know that that words are embedded in sentences and sentences are embedded in paragraphs and paragraphs are embedded in larger contexts. And so we approach scripture usually very carefully recognizing that. And I, I think some of what I would want to say, and, and again, I'm not the first to say it. There are many who have said it uh, in, in more um, complete ways what I'm saying is we, 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 we need to do the same thing when we look at these theological sources. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit, um, you know, I think the patristic approach to scripture is something that I think a lot of um, reformed thinkers that are trained in, in most seminaries, they don't, they don't understand it fully. And I think they're a little bit suspicious of it. If, if we're being honest, because the approach is very different um, at least in my reading of how scripture is being used. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, it takes a little bit of work to understand what they're doing. But if you just look at it on the surface, it, it sometimes feels a little bit um, contrary to what we've been trained to do. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what is this approach, this common approach that you were finding in, in that uh, third and fourth century? Well, the first thing I would say is that I think there are many examples in patristic writings that uh, w- I, I would be somewhat critical of or suspicious of as well. So, so I'm not saying that they were all um, exegeting in the way that I would commend to uh, Christians today. Yeah. But uh, so, some were, but there, there's a spectrum there. There were some who were, I think, more careful with the text of scripture than others. But what I think they share in common with one another is an understanding that the Bible is one book that we're dealing with the whole of scripture as we deal with atomized passages, which means then that when we are in um, specific passages, it's not improper or inappropriate or far-fetched to bring to bear to those passages theological categories that are introduced at other parts of scripture. So one of the things that 
can sort of set our teeth on edge a little bit when we come at it um, for the first time is that, for instance, with this question of the Trinity, they'll bring all kinds of uh, Trinitarian um, uh, uh, conclusions to texts which um, are you know, before the incarnation. Uh, so so you, you, that, that strikes us as strange. We'll say, well, where, I, I don't see the Trinity there in that text. Uh, but, but what you often realize when you dig a little deeper is that that was because they were understanding the scriptures as a unified whole. Yeah. And it, it, in a sense, it wasn't that they had a lower view of the scriptures than we do, and they were playing fast and loose with it. I think they would say to us, you have a low view of scripture because yes. you don't really see the whole thing yeah. as inspired by God uh, and, and therefore, you know, telling the truth throughout. Uh, the scope of it. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's something that is really classically reformed is that same approach to scripture. You know, when you read someone like Calvin um, or, you know, someone from that era, um, even like I'm reading through uh, Witsius on the economy of the covenants between God and man, there is that kind of approach where, where there are texts sometimes where you look at it, you're like, wait a second, that, that doesn't seem like it would say that. But as you really kind of marinate in those thinkers, you start to see how, comprehensively they are looking at scripture. And, you know, one of the things that I've always found a little bit ironic about um, certain flavors of evangelical interpretation, and I think, I actually think that Dr. Grudem um, would probably fall into this uh, kind of a description is sometimes, you know, the historical grammatical method is absolutely vital and it's important and it's the way that we look at scripture. But sometimes I think we, uh, we look at scripture and reduce the text to only what the human author could have intended. And, and we think that's what's meant by the historical grammatical method. And, and the really ironic part about that is we actually end up treating the holy inspired inerrant text and addressing it the exact same way we would address any other text historically. We, we would just think, well, what does the human author mean? And we don't think about the fact that the, the Holy Spirit superintending that authorship could, could have and likely did include elements in the text that would only become understandable in the light of the incarnation, you know, a thousand years later, you know, the most stark example that I think everyone goes to is in Genesis one, you know, the, the let us make man in our own image, or, you know, in the first three verses where the Holy spirit is hovering over the face of the water. It's funny because a lot of people will look at that and go, well, that's obviously that's just the Royal we it's the Royal plurality or, or it's a plurality of majesty or something like that. But if you go back and you look at Calvin, Calvin says like, well, if you don't see, if you don't see this as the father speaking, the son and the spirit finishing the work, then you're basically just a modalist. So, so we, we look at those texts and we treat them as though there could be no further evidence or no further meaning. And that's exactly, I think what the patristics were doing is they were, and, and the, the apostles are doing that in, in the new Testament. So the, you know, there are, you're right. There are all sorts of really weird interpretive methods. Tertullian has this whole weird discourse where he interprets Psalm one and sitting in the seat of scoffers, that's referring to the physical seats at the games. Like he's got these weird, it's not even allegory. It's like weird application that he does. And, and that's, all over the place. But I think you're right that there is this understanding by the, the main patristic figures we think of that really is all about seeing God's hand superintending the entire scripture driving towards a singular point uh, in predictive, you know, proleptically 
to the incarnation and then driving backwards in the new Testament to explain and understand that incarnation in light of everything in the old Testament. So I think that's a really good point. So, so tell me a little bit uh, about some of these shared theological assumptions. Cause, cause that's, I think where the meat of this controversy comes from is especially in relation to the Nicene creed. You know, when you read the Nicene creed, it doesn't seem like it's all that specific about some of the questions that have to be asked, you know, the plurality of will and the Trinity divine simplicity, you know, what do all those things mean? The, the Nicene Creed doesn't seem to be specific on those, those matters, but uh, tell me a little bit about some of these shared uh, assumptions that you're talking about, or these shared theological positions. Well, the question of the will um, was uh, obviously one that was uh, significantly debated, um, and, and that actually framed some of the debates in ways that I think sometimes modern interpreters miss. Yeah. But divine simplicity is one of those uh, Christian teachings that it, you, you, you find it assumed and at times asserted positively by virtually all of the significant figures. There, yeah. there's, there's really no one that you can point to who didn't believe that God was simple in his essence, that God was without parts, that nothing could be added to him or taken away from him. As a matter of fact, that it was it was that bedrock conviction in many respects that set the stage for some of the debates that did happen. Yeah. Um and, and so there you what you really don't find in the fourth century is a figure either in the mainstream of Christian orthodoxy or even on the fringes or, or even someone who would be declared a heretic who didn't understand that when we said God, what we meant was un, this uncreated being who is simple in, in essence and whose essence is and, and essence and existence are, are seen synonymously. So, so uh, that's, that's one that, people cast all kinds of doubt on and and you sort of have to start from square one to prove it today but that's not a discussion that we see happening at least at least that I've encountered um in the 3rd century and the 4th century that's just lurking in the background as a baseline assumption and along with that actually closely connected with that you brought you brought up uh the creation narrative the creation narrative was central in so many of these Trinitarian discussions, not just because of the mention of the spirit and the word and the, the plural and all that kind of thing, but, but because the fact that God was the creator um, and the source of being, again, that's tied together with the doctrine of divine simplicity. Nothing is added to him. He is the source of all being. And so all of those things, which I think would correct probably, you know, 90% of the, of the debates we have about um, a theology proper were, were simply axiomatic yeah. in those centuries. Yeah, that's one of the things, you know, when I was studying Athanasius, you know, everybody thinks of Athanasius in reference to the Christology debates, which he certainly was central in that. They don't necessarily realize that he went on kind of after Arius was defeated uh, somewhere in the midst of one of his exiles and, and argued, you know, in favor of the same argument applied to the Holy Spirit. And, 
you know what you're right that even the heretics didn't deny divine simplicity <laughs> and, and divine simplicity is actually what drove Arius to the position that he was in is he was looking at the father and he was saying well the father you know god is simple therefore there can't be a son who is not the father and the son is not the father. And so he's missing that point. And, you know, it's funny that the biggest pushback against the doctrine of divine simplicity that I ever hear is, well, it's so incomprehensible. And I just look at it, I'm like, well, yeah, that's kind of the point. Like that's, that's the point is we can't, you know, it actually, one of, you know, probably the best book that I would recommend to readers to talk about this particular issue is Dr. Dalzell's book, All That Is In God. And he goes through the whole, you know, all of the patristic evidence, the biblical evidence. It's really a good short, digestible, comprehensive uh, treatment of the subject. And then he has his doctoral dissertation and more technical ones you can get. But what really clicked with me, because the Doctrine of Divine Simplicity is one of those that I always kind of said, like, I'm not even really sure how we talk about this. And the point he made was, well, the only way we can talk about it is in composite fashion. So not only can we not understand it, because we think in words and sentences, which are composite, but we can't even talk about it. So we just have to do the best we can. Um, so what, what do you think some of the other theological assumptions that were going around or other kinds of theological points that were part of the discussion or maybe elements of the creed that uh, the creed itself assumes a certain theological position or points to a certain theological position that you were able to identify? Well, one of the, one of the other things that's pronounced in these figures is their affirmation. And this, this is something that's in some cases divided the Orthodox from those who are uh, eventually seen to be heretical. The, the commitment to the idea that um, of mystery, when we discuss, uh, when we discuss God, when we discuss theology proper. Um, So everyone that you read who is in this kind of Nicene orbit not only affirms divine simplicity, as you say, uh, but also we're persuaded that there is a, a, a mystery present when we talk about the um, three divine persons. Now, and that's, that's important because you're right, there is a methodological question that often gets asked today. How can I make sense of divine simplicity? Um, and, and what I think these church fathers would say is when you're dealing with um, God himself, there is going to be mystery. And so yeah. it's, it's surprising, um, particularly coming from our vantage point, it's surprising to, to read the number of um, sermons or treatises that spend a great deal of time trying to prove that there is a mystery here. Um, because I I think what they recognized was to to reject that or or to or to lose sight of that is inevitably going to cause you to jettison some of these key convictions about theology proper. So divine simplicity, the notion of mystery, and then I mentioned it already, but the the fact of God as the creator of all things. Yeah, that is um, that is such a profoundly rich theological statement. Um, of course, it is a statement that um, that refutes Gnosticism, but it is also a statement that I think sets the stage for the way we approach Scripture in its entirety. Because because when you realize that God is the uncreated Creator, uh, and and there is this uh, therefore great distance between that which is uncreated and and all creatures. 
um, then that also uh, then carries with it all these uh, assumptions about the nature of language, uh, the nature of language, particularly when we talk about God, and the fact that all of that is going to be analogical in nature. Uh, that 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 all kind kind of is is a package deal with God as the Creator. So that Creator creature distinction is not just about uh, how did we get here. It, it really is about um, the nature of the way we're even going to talk about God. Yeah, yeah. You know, during the height of the controversy, I, you know, I'm I'm no prolific blogger by any sense of the imagination, and I haven't I don't think I've written anything for like seven months. But during the controversy. I remarked and I, I observed, particularly with Bruce Ware, that line between the, you know, the, the classic distinction in Christian theology isn't between matter and, and non-matter. It's not spiritual and, and physical. It's that distinction between creator and creature. And so that, that's the fundamental line. I think, you know, Dr. Michael Horton talks a lot about that. And I think I've picked it up from him and it's very helpful is that's the distinction. But what, what people like Dr. Ware and I think, you know, Dr. Grudem have done is they've redrawn a different line. And so now, now instead of the creator-creature distinction, now we have the father, and then there's a line, and then there's everything else. And, and the troubling thing is that with that line, the son and the spirit are now on the same side of the line as the rest of creation. And, you know, when you read the Nicene Creed, if you're not careful— um, you miss some of these fundamental things. I actually think the same is true with the Calcedonian definition is, is the, the big points that we look at are often not the, the points that they're trying to make. And so, for example, the only person in the, the Nicene Creed that is directly identified as God is the Father. But that's not to say, and, and I think this is where people like uh, Dr. Ware and Dr. Grudem go off the rails a little bit, that's not to say that the Father is somehow uniquely God in a way that the Son and the Spirit are not. What the Nicene Creed's doing is it's actually trying just to stick close to the language of Scripture, so to the language of the New Testament. But the primary means by which the Son and the Spirit are now identified as one in operation with the Father is in the fact that they also participate in this one act of creation, which in the creed is the central identifying feature of God. It's not, it's not that he's eternal. It's not that he's even that he's omniscient or that is redeemer. I mean, all of those things are present in the creed, but the first comment, I mean, omnipotent almighty is, is there, but that's related to creation. The first comment is that he's the maker of all things. So, so when Dr. Ware says, uh, and we're kind of, I think we're kind of transitioning into the next part of your research by talking about some of the sort of the current developments and things like that. When he says that the father could have acted unilaterally apart from the son, but he chose to operate in conjunction with the son and the spirit. Not only have we lost divine simplicity, we've lost the singularity of will. We've now placed the father on a separate register from the son and the spirit. The son and the spirit now will look a lot more like creatures than they do like the one, you know, omnipotent Lord who created all things. So I think that's really a key insight that you're pulling out is that the, the patristic understanding of omnipotence was tied up in this understanding as the fountain of being, that the, the source of all things, the uncaused cause and the, the cause that is not in, you know, affected by the causes or by the effects, um, the unaffected effector is another way to kind of talk about it. That's the central feature in the Nicene Creed. And that's what establishes the father is God, the son is God, and the spirit is God. And if we're not careful, we don't establish 
that that those three are one God, right? To use confessional language, that the the three are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. If you go the route of of some of these um, deviations in theology proper, you necessarily lose that they're the same in substance. You might have three gods, but you don't have one God who is three persons. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think you put it really well. Um, the th- these pro Nicene uh, fathers certainly. Uh, a pro, uh, certainly articulated what we would call today this doctrine of inseparable operations. Yes. While they affirmed that God was non-composite, he wasn't made up of parts, they also affirmed that God uh, eternally existed in three persons. And and that 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 um, uh, reference that you made to the to the idea that Jesus is Lord is is really one of the jumping off points that you often find these patristic writers taking. They'll start with that. And, and it's interesting because today in modern theology, uh, many go about it the opposite direction. They say, well, what can we know about the person of Christ? And then let's, let's extrapolate from that to talk about God. Yeah. And actually what you find just in terms of approach not even in terms of conclusions, but what you find in terms of approach in the early churches, they they would say, all right, what is it that we know to be true of God as the creator? And then let's think through the implications of that for Christ. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a totally different starting point. Yeah. That, that distinction for our listeners, that's often called a distinction between Christology from above and Christology from below. And when you, when you find a seminary, that is engaged in Christology from below, it's not invariable. It's not a necessary conclusion, but it, it's almost invariable that that conclusion will eventually lead to, to liberal outcomes. Is that when you, when you start to look at the person, the human, uh, any human, uh, and, and the human nature of Christ in this regard is not really different, you eventually end up making God look like us. And, you know, when you, when you start with the incarnation as our definition of God, there's good scriptural reasons to say, well, when we look at Jesus, we see the Father. But you have to ask, well, when we look at Jesus according to his humanity, do we see the Father? Or do we look at Jesus according to his divinity and see the Father? Well, the whole point of the incarnation is that we need to have a human Christ to redeem us. And, and so we, we end up going on the wrong direction, I think. You're absolutely right that they... they this sort of so-called Christology from below, I have not encountered it really in the in the patristic testimony. I don't really see it in the scriptures all that much. Um, it really does seem like it was kind of a later development. It seems it seems that way to me too. And you know, uh, certainly in terms of a, a mainstream kind of kind of reading, I, I'm sure there are uh, authors out there here and there who are doing that kind of thing. But that's not really what you see in the mainstream of. Uh, this kind of circle of 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 second and third third and fourth century yeah. um, church fathers. You know, the other thing I would say though is this: I think I think for many Christians, it begins with, and this is a good thing, with a very high view of the scriptures, and they say we everything we have to prove everything that we say from the Bible, and I, I I'm. I'm right there with them. I want the scriptures to be my guide and the norming norm for my life and for my thinking. However, um, if we then assume that the scriptures in every place speak univocally uh, about, use univocal language um, when they're speaking of God, then we're, we're going to 
well, number one, create a whole lot of confusion in our thinking, but, uh, but I think we're also going to be led down some, some, some wrong trails. So I, I just want to say that while I'm uh, rejecting all the, I think, same things that you're warning listeners uh, about, I, I understand, I think, how, how this begins yeah. um, with an attempt to, uh, to look at the scriptures and to say, and to, and to, extrapolate from some of the descriptions they give us about God. But I think what often gets lost is the fact that there is this creator-creature distinction and that there are clear statements in Scripture that say things like, from him and through him and to him are all things. Yeah. And so we're dealing with with uh, with something totally different from, from a creature in that respect. Yeah, and you know, those passages, it, it's it's important to understand that the um, the utter unity of the Trinity is presupp- if, if we believe that's true, if we believe that the, the Trinity is one, uh, you know, we worship uh, the Trinity in unity and unity and diverse, like all of the different kinds of ways that we explain that. If that's true, then any phrase or any term in the New Testament, even if it's specifically applied to the Father, which most times in the New Testament, when you see the word God or, or direct reference to God, most times it's referring to the Father. Um, it's a pretty safe assumption that it, it's speaking of the Father. But just because in the context it's speaking of the Father, if we have this true commitment that there's this radical unity in the Trinity, then everything that's true of the Father uh, is also true of the Son and the Spirit. So, you know, like um, in First John, the famous God is love. Well, in context, that's a reference to the Father, and we can see that by looking at the rest of the passage, that it's speaking of the Father as a person, but then you look at, you know, John Owen's treatment, he makes it really clear that even though he agrees, yes, in context, this is speaking of the Father, this principle that God is love applies equally and identically to the Son and the Spirit. So I think that's a really important point, because that's one of the things that I've also encountered with some of these um, advocates who are trying to deviate from the classic uh, classic theology or, or um, theology proper, they want to say, well, like, well, yeah, maybe we can say that about the Father, and maybe you can prove that from the Scripture about the Father, but you can't really prove it about the Son and the Spirit because that language is only talking about the Father. So that for him, through him, you know, to him, all that language, the patristic testimony was uh, they were looking at that, and in some cases they were saying, yep, that's talking about the Father or the Spirit or the Son here. But then they take that next theological step, and this is where I think it, it becomes systematic theology rather than just kind of parroting what the Scripture says. The explanation of that is systematic theology that, yes, those are true, but because of the reality that the, the, the Trinity is united in a radical, fundamental way, then those things are also true about the Son and the Spirit. So when we say that the Father is the supreme creator over all things and that he doesn't share his glory with any other, we also say that about the Son and the Spirit uh, in reference to divinity. The Son doesn't share his glory with any other either, and the Spirit doesn't either. So there must only be one glory. So then we start to get into that's how we're proving divine simplicity. So, you know, I think all of, all of what you're saying is, is spot on. So I want to, I want to take a turn. We're going to run short on time here, but I think the application of what we're saying here now is that we have to start to look at some of the, the modern thinkers that are either they're advocating some of this stuff knowingly. You know, I think of like William Lane Craig, who's not reformed by any stretch of the imagination. He's advocating some really dangerous, uh, changes that he would say are corrections, but changes to the Christian tradition. Everybody can look at that. We're like Greg Boyd, you know, open process theology, modal, you know, modal, um, Molinism, those kinds of things. 
those are clear enemies outside the gates of reformed uh, theology. But talk a little bit about some of the figures that we would kind of consider within our own camp that we need to really think carefully about as we're reading. Yeah, I would divide them up into a couple categories, just like you did. I think there are people who have set out as kind of a theological project to redefine um, the classical doctrine of God. I I, I say this without um, any disparagement, but just to take him at his word, I think, I think Bruce Ware is an example of this in his, even in his dissertation. I mean, this is the kind of thing he's setting out to do now. Now I think he would reject some of the accusations that have been made that he's deviated as far as some think he's deviated Um, away even from Nicene Orthodoxy. But but regardless of, of where you think he's ended up, that's that's part of his his life's work, his scholarly yeah. life's work. We see others who would fall into that category as well, although it's hard because many times when pressed, they will reject um, they will reject the analysis of where they ended up. Yeah. So for instance, I mean, you mentioned my friend uh, James's book earlier and, and and it's a, it's a great book. I, I, I would commend it without any hesitation or reservation, but for instance, he, he talks about certain thinkers in there who have um, set out to modify or in, in their, in their thinking perfect uh, the Doctrine of God. He mentions, for instance, Dr. Oliphant's work um, at Westminster Seminary. Now, again, I want to be really careful here because he would reject the analysis that says he's gone, you know, beyond the bounds. Um, nonetheless, I it is uh, it can't be disputed that that it is a project attempting to modify theology proper. Yeah. Right, so 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 we see things like that where they are where there are explicit attempts to um, modify or again they would say perfect or improve our theology proper. Then there are a lot of other people who fall into a, a different category, and I would probably characterize this as just sort of. Um, perhaps sloppiness or unfamiliarity with, with the tradition or unfamiliarity with the traditional terms. So I think there are a number of people, even in James's book where, where he's, I mean, he, he, uh, he agonized over that because he knew that in some cases he was drawing out examples from number one, from men that he really respected and, and number two, from men who probably weren't, trying to say what they in fact did say. Yeah. I think you see that a lot. So I think there are a lot of, um, there are, there, there are a lot of uh, writers that you'll read and, and the more familiar you are with the basic assumptions of Nicene Orthodoxy, the more you realize their things they're saying are, are, are undermining those yeah. or going directly against them. But I'm not sure that that's what they're trying to do. Um, another example in the first category of setting out to really um, change things would be someone like uh, Wayne Grudem. And I don't think this is, again, I, I'm not trying to uh, name names for, for the sake of making accusations. And I want to be, be clear that some of these men would reject the conclusions that have often been drawn about them. But, but he is, crystal clear in his systematic theology that he rejects the um, 
the uh, he 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 believes that the language of monogenes in the New Testament is referring to um, the 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 begetting of the son, the eternal begetting of the son. He 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 sees that differently. He he has all kinds of arguments for it, but that's. I mean, that is actually rejecting the language of, of the Nicene Creed, at least as far as I can see. I don't see how you avoid that conclusion. So I think there are two different categories here. And I think in the second category, there are probably a lot of examples, uh, but they're probably unwitting examples. And I actually know of people who are mentioned in James's work who he followed up with and they said, oh, you know, yeah, I did say that, but that wasn't what I intended to say. And I yeah, you know, I guess I didn't understand what I was saying, and so, you know, that happens. But but then there there really are there are uh, modern evangelical theologians who have set out to uh, reconstruct or or as I said, I think in their minds perfect the doctrine of God. Yeah, I, I think those categories are probably right. It, you know, there's there's the people that, and in my experience, the people who have intentionally set out to um, correct or improve or clarify, you know, there's all these different words that get used. Those are the people that um, they're the hardest to really talk to, um, you know, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, some of it is because that was what they were intending. I think they've actually researched it more thoroughly and they have, they have better arguments to just to be transparent. Um, you know, I, I have my, my difficulties with William Lane Craig, but he's, he's not a dumb guy and he's done his research. Um, not that the people in other categories are dumb guys and haven't done their research, but they, you know, they're intentionally doing this. So they've already thought about the objections and are already in, in works of trying to overcome them. Um, you know, I think Scott Alfin, who you mentioned is probably someone who falls into that category. He, he, or John frame is another one, you know, and they're, that's they're, a very good example. Frame they're is very good. similar in terms of the arguments that they're making, even though they, f- they formulate them differently. Um, Dr. Dahl's always on reform forum recently, which was a phenomenal episode. And he, he goes into a lot of depth on those two. Then there are people like Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem that, I, you know, even though they're trying to sort of correct and clarify, I don't think they understand what they've done just to, to be really transparent. I've said it before, and maybe this is a little bit, extreme, but I don't think they're actually have done a good job at, at constructing their systematic theology. And, you know, I think Dr. Grudem is one of those examples where the way that his book is laid out, he explicitly states, I don't take into account the historic understanding of these things, unless, unless I'm kind of like pushing against it. You know, he says in his introduction, really all we're trying to do in systematic theology is collect a, a, a group of passages and explain what they say and yeah, the, his, the history of the church is interesting, and it might be helpful for us to understand how those people thought about the passages, but it doesn't really give us anything in terms of understanding what the scriptures actually mean. And on a certain level, yeah, what Athanasius says, or what Augustine, or John Calvin, or Tony Arsenal, or Jonathan Master says about a particular passage doesn't tell us what the passage actually says. Like, you got to go back to the scripture. But I think it was Spurgeon who said, like, are we going to pretend that the Holy Spirit didn't do anything in the last 2000 years? Because that's just that's just foolish and a little bit arrogant. And that's where I, I struggle so much is men like Dr. Grudem or Dr. Ware. They love they love Jesus. They, they want to serve the church. They're not trying to destroy, uh, destroy anything. 
but neither was Arius and neither was Nestorius. Like they, they weren't out set out. They're not, you know, they're not villains twisting their mustache going, oh, how can I undermine the, the confession of the church? But you're right. There are certain, you know, words have meanings. And when you, when you arrange certain words in certain orders in a certain context, they convey a certain meaning, whether, whether you realized it or intended it to or not. Um, so I, I appreciate, you know, kind of this measured approach of saying like, we need to really understand that there's a difference between someone explicitly uh, articulating, knowingly articulating something different than what the church has, that they've set out to correct the church and they know they've done it. Uh, they know that that was what they were trying to do. And then there's these people who, even though that may be what they, they tried to do, um, they don't realize how much they've actually succeeded in that goal in a way that's not pushed them past what we would understand as an orthodox confession on a, a given topic. Well, I think you've hit on the real difficulty here, which is uh, there, there are all kinds of disagreements we can have and debates we can have uh, on theological issues. But the tricky part here is that in most of these cases, um, people, uh, men will want to also say, and, and I affirm Nicene Orthodoxy, or and right. I affirm divine simplicity. And that's where I think it becomes a little bit of a different discussion. Um, you can have a discussion about, is this true? And that's the most important discussion to have. Is this true? Is this biblical? Is, is this, in fact, what we, uh, what God has revealed to us? But that's then it's compounded by the fact that when they start, essentially, if you say that you're affirming a creed, you're making a historical statement, right? You're saying I affirm these words and their meaning. Um, and, and so a, what I was trying to do is to say, this was their meaning. This was the, the theological, scriptural, historical culture in which these words were put together and that that has that has content as you said words have meaning and so what we can't do is we can't say oh yeah i affirm i affirm that creed and then go on to effectively undermine the basic presuppositions that were behind everything that they were they were saying and and i'm not and i, I want to be clear here even in the names that we've mentioned, that you've mentioned, or that I've mentioned, I'm not, I'm not necessarily accusing each of these men of having done that. But I think that's the discussion that I was trying to have. Yeah. Uh, it, you could do this with any creedal document. You could do this with the Westminster Confession of Faith. You could say, all right, what does this mean? Yeah. And, and then what are you saying? And are those two things compatible? And I, that's a different discussion than saying, are you right or are they right? But I was trying to establish, here's what they were saying. No, I happen to believe that they were correct and that this is the truth. Um, so I would go that extra step. But, but, but that, that was really the, the, the debate I was trying to engage in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, this is still important work to be done. I, I think, one of the things that happens, particularly in kind of our modern era with some of these theological controversies is they, they flare up and they burn really bright for a really short amount of time. 
Like I think most onlookers who work act, aren't actively following what's going on in this arena would say that like, well, the EFS controversy is basically over. I hear people all the time say like, yeah, Wayne Grudem recanted of that at ETS. And I'm like, no, he didn't. He's still saying the same things he did. Um, I've actually been reading through his systematic theology edition one in preparation for his second edition, which is due to come out soon to see kind of what the changes are. And you're right. There are, there have been some changes. He no longer, um, he no longer denies the eternal generation of the sun. Um, he, he, he thinks it means something very different than what, you know, historically it has meant and what it meant in the Nicene Creed, but he, he now understands that general, you know, the, the begottenness of the sun in eternity past and the spiration of the spirit or the procession of the spirit in eternity past is a theological reality that the scriptures um, maybe don't directly teach, but, but they support it by good and necessary consequences, the confessional language you and I would use. I don't think he would necessarily use that same kind of language, but the scriptures support that theology. But the reality is for people who are active in, you know, studying theology proper, keeping up with what's going on in, in the world of theology, um, the controversy has sort of boiled down to a simmer. We're kind of on embers now. Um, I think, you know, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I think that the second edition of uh, his systematic theology coming out is going to, it's going to flare back up again. Um, I think that's going to add a little bit of fuel to the fire. And I, I think your research in this is timely um, because now that we've talked about it, now there's a, now there's a discussion to have, like there's, there's theology that we can do. There's studying to, to be had. Um, you know, I would, I would make a recommendation, um, Don Fairbairn, who I recommended earlier, he, he wrote a book called Life in the Trinity, which is kind of a layperson's introduction to patristic systematic theology. It's a very unique approach. Um, he goes through and he basically says, this is what the patristic testimony says. This is how we are to understand this locus of uh, systematic theology in light of how the patristics were teaching it. So that's, I think, would be a very helpful book um, for people who are wanting to dig in this tool a bit more. Do you have any recommendations as far as articles or books? Um, obviously, we've referenced Dr. Dalzal's book several times. Do you have any other recommendations to make to, to our audience about what they should study and what they should look at? Well, I found um, Lewis Ayer's books uh, just incredibly helpful and rich. Um, they open up a world that many are, are are unfamiliar with and and actually that notion of a theological culture uh, of Nicaea is is one that I that's language that he uses yeah um Anatolius's book um the is it the road to Nicaea I can't remember uh, retrieving Nicaea retrieving Nicaea yes, yeah that's right is uh is is also outstanding and similarly will kind of open up the world I think that um let's see in terms of of articles. Well, we didn't really get a chance to touch on this, but Origen plays such a critical role yes. in setting the stage for so many of these debates that come afterwards. He's just a towering giant in many in many ways and it's it's a it's amazing to see the extent to which the 4th century discussions uh, that we're a little more familiar with, uh, the Arian controversy and things like that are are just um, kind of uh, spinoffs in a sense of yeah. certain features of origins theology, good and bad. And, you know, to that end, certainly uh, uh, Robert Louis Wilkins uh, material is, is helpful. Um, I'm forgetting one article that was 
Uh, oh, Rowan Williams uh, wrote an outstanding article on uh, various facets of origins theology. Those are a couple of things. In yeah. terms of the modern debate, um, I, I agree with you. I, I, I would still say that, that James's book is, is the go-to starting point, at least. Um, and I, I also think uh, that, that there, were, there have been good books written on um, the uh, eternal generation. Uh, there, there's that book edited by Sanders and Swain on yes, eternal generation, which, which has uh, chapters written by a number of different authors that is, I think, really helpful in a lot of ways. So those are just a few things off the top of my head. But um, but it's a rich world. I mean, when, once you dive in, and you know this, Tony, once you dive into the uh, world of patristic scholars, scholarship, and I am not uh, a patristic scholar by training, um, it is it is deep and it is it is rich. Yeah, yeah. A couple that I would add to the list that came out before I think before this controversy really heated up, so they don't touch on it directly. Um, or even really indirectly, but um, in the Zondervan New Dogmatics, uh, Studies in New Dogmatics series, Fred Sanders, who's a Methodist scholar, I think he's at Biola. Um, yep. He has an excellent book in that series on the Trinity. It's called Triune God. Um, yes. It's ironic because I, you know, I get some publicity copies from Zondervan and my publicity contact who sent that to me, his name is Trinity, um, <laughs> which was interesting. Um, but that book is excellent. And it specifically touches on kind of this idea of, the eternal generation, the, the eternal procession of the spirit and how fundamental that is, those two things were in rather than using them to prove that the son is somehow functionally subordinate, which is what Dr. Grudem and Dr. Ware do with the doctrine. It act, those doctrines were actually used to prove that he isn't uh, subordinate in any sense to the, to the father. So um, that was very good. Uh, there was a book, I believe it's by Christopher Holmes in that same series on the Holy Spirit that touches on very similar um, things. So, yeah, I, I mean, I would just say, you know, take a look at all of these books, um, you know, for our audience, take a look at these books. Some of them are very difficult. Um, divine simplicity is uh, a tricky subject and, um, you know, God, uh, all that is in God is a popular level treatment, but it's a very difficult popular level treatment. You know, you can only, uh, I don't mean this pejoratively, but you can only dumb down theology proper so much before you've corrupted it. And maybe to sort of bring it all to a close, I think that, a lot of the evangelical, um, I'll call them corruptions of divine of divine simplicity or corruptions of, of theology proper, they didn't set out, as we said, they haven't set out to corrupt, you know, classic Christian theism. What they what most of them set out to do is to make Christian classic theism something that can be understood by the average person in the pew. And what's difficult, and this probably says more about the state of the modern church uh, than it does about anything else, the average person in the pew is not well equipped to understand these concepts, and they should be. So that, uh, to, to bring it all back around to, to Greenville and Cairn University, that's one of those things that I think is so important about modern Christian higher education is whether it's seminary training that's equipping pastors to go into the pews or whether it's people who are training for business or medicine or whatever they're training for an undergraduate and they're doing it in the context of a Christian school. We have to get better at teaching people, teaching the average Christian these difficult things. You know, there's this funny anecdotal account that in uh, Jonathan Edwards' day, you would find a plowman plowing in the field with a Greek New Testament in one hand. 
And, and I, you know, I, I've taken like seven semesters of Greek and I couldn't do that. Like I couldn't sit and just read a Greek new Testament. Um, but we have to get better at that. So um, check out all of uh, Dr. Master's work. Um, you know, you can look it up on uh, Karen university has a list of publications. I'll put some information in the show notes. Um, Jonathan, is there any other kind of like closing thoughts or closing ideas that you want to leave our audience with? I would just say that this is, um, while it is a difficult doctrine and, and, and the more we list books and, and ones are kind of occurring to me, even now, I, I realize th- these are not easy things. You're right. And remember, at the, the church fathers affirmed that there, there's mystery here. There's deep mystery here. And we have to acknowledge that going in. Having said all that, I would also say, what subject could be more important yeah. to reflect on and, and to get right and if we don't get this right, it's, it's uh, totally predictable that a number of other things in our theology are going to be off-center. So it's more an appeal than anything to say, yes, these are difficult subjects. Yes, they may appear to us to be sort of far removed from the things that matter, but I think there's nothing that matters more than understanding and articulating correctly the God whom we worship and, and approaching him and, and so that we are worshiping the God who is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great note to end on. All right. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. You know, this has been a real pleasure and I'm just, as I said earlier, I'm really looking forward to seeing kind of where the next phase of um, your involvement in Christian academia goes with Greenville and um, you know, the, the place for truth, the magazine is amazing. I think it's something everybody should subscribe to. So um, I'll put all these links in the show notes, check out Jonathan's work, um, check out Dr. Dalzal's work. Um, you know, go pause right now, go subscribe to theology on the go, listen to all the entire back catalog and then come back. So Jonathan, thank you again. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm part-